Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. We know the agencies are watching you, but we can't tell whether they're trying to protect you from a threat or whether they are the threat. Do they know that there's someone trying to abduct you or, or is it them that are trying to abduct you and they're going to blame it on someone else? Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Andy Rowe Show. Nicholas Schmidl is an award-winning writer that always manages to find a way to be at the middle of some of the biggest stories on the planet. Nick has just spent five years embedded with Virgin Galactic's space tourism program. You're also going to hear stories about how he escaped from Pakistan, all about his expose on Hollywood's gossip platform TMZ, and how he freed an innocent man from prison. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Nick, thanks for coming on the show. All right, thanks for having me on. All right, well, I want to go through a few of the stories that you've written later, because as I said to you off air, I went down a bit of a wormhole researching them before this interview, but... Let's start with your work on Virgin Galactic, because you were embedded within that company for like five years, weren't you? Yeah, so I, I didn't really know much about Virgin Galactic at all up until October 31st, 2014, which is, I think, probably when a lot of people heard about them. They, on that day, uh, suffered a, a horrific crash out in the California desert. And I remember seeing the news that there had been this spaceship crash and that there was a dead t- a test pilot had been killed. And I remember thinking, wait, I was kind of like, stop. There's a, a British billionaire who's, who's, who's bankrolling a private space, uh, exp, you know, a private space test company that's, you know, flying supersonic aircraft in the middle of the desert. Like it sounded so kind of retro and zany and right stuff like that I was immediately enamored. So I, uh, shortly after that, went to the company and asked if, you know, I said I, we wanted to write something about them and what kind of access could I get? And and the agreement that we reached was that I would stay with them until they so that had been the fourth powered flight was the one that crashed. And the idea was I would stay with them until the fifth powered flight. So I would I would stay with them as they kind of emotionally recovered from this crash and then um, built another spaceship and then returned to rocket power test flights. When you were in there, what sort of access did you have? Pretty unencumbered. I mean. I was never, you know, there's this, there's this saying in the intelligence community, the context is that if you don't know what to ask for, then no one's going to tell you anything. But if you have specific questions, whether you're a reporter or whether you're, you know, a newly arrived political appointee to run the CIA, if you know to ask about program X, Y, and Z, you'll get an answer. But if you don't, no one's going to offer it to you. So it, it, to, to sort of draw that parallel to Virgin Galactic, when I got there, there was a lot of, okay, we're going to set you up with this person to talk about this and this person to talk about this. And I was like, well, no, 
I know there's a meeting at two o'clock with the engineers discussing this. Can I go sit in on that? Sure. You know, I know there's this happening after that. So once I was able to start establishing relationships inside the company and I knew what was happening on any given day, I was only denied access to one meeting and that was at the very, very end. And that's when I kind of knew that the winds were shifting and that, that things were coming to an end. Um, but otherwise, I was going flying with the pilots. I went to the centrifuge with the pilots, go-kart outings. I mean, the whole thing. I was, I was, I was part of the company for all intents and purposes. I was actually, at one point, a new hire had mistaken me as an employee at one point. And I was, <laughs> it was kind of like, you know, am I allowed to stand over here? And I said, dude, <laughs> I'm a reporter. I'm, you're, you've got much more <laughs> right to be here at this point than I do. So I just want to go back on what you were talking about with the flying with the test pilots. Like, how? How hairy did that get? Did you get in any situations where you felt like you were in a, a testing situation? It might help for me to explain their sort of flight configuration a little bit. So unlike most traditional rocket companies, which launch vertically, Virgin Galactic has an air launch system. So they have their, you know, their, their, I sort of almost want to think of them more as an, as an airplane company that happens to go to space than as a, than as a traditional rocket company. Right, And in that sense, you know, they have this little spaceship, it attaches to the belly of a mothership and the mothership tows the spaceship up to about 45,000 feet, drops the spaceship. And at that point, the test pilots on board the spaceship light the rocket, ignite the rocket, and then they enter this, this, what they call the gamma turn, this sort of hockey stick shaped, um, very steep ascent into, you know, into space. And so there's a you know a pretty significant amount of g forces that are put on on the test pilots as they sort of enter that turn there's a lot of of the program's sort of welfare depends on the on the skills and the talents of these pilots and so they are constantly they have an acrobatic airplane that they're constantly taking up and sort of doing flips you know it's trying to i mean it sounds twisted but like they're trying to sort of make themselves pass out knowing that if they continue to push themselves, they will maintain and sort of uh, um, expand their G tolerance. And so I went up there, I went up um, on three occasions with them in this little, in this little acrobatic plane. And, you know, for them, it's kind of a walk. It's kind of just a normal day. You know, for me, you know, I've got the, the, the barf bag under my leg and the whole time I'm like, Oh man, oh man, oh man, am I going to, don't make me have to sort of take this thing out. So that, that was humbling because, you know, the the background to all of this is that my dad is a is a fighter pilot as well. My dad has has kind of is connected to this world. He 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 recommended one of their test pilots for Top Gun thirty five years ago, and so as they said before they took me up, one of as this particular test pilot said before he took me up one day, he says, "Listen, if you feel sick, don't worry, just let me know. I'm not going to call your old man and tell him that your son's a wimp." And I'm like, at that point, I'm like, all right, well, there's no way that I'm going to you know like I'm <laughs> I'm gonna have to, you're going to have to drag me out of this thing you know, with the barf bag attached to my lips, if possible, but I'm not just going to like, you know, I'm not going to wave the white towel. But every time we landed that acrobatic airplane, I would get out and very, very happy to be back on, 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 you know, on the ground, on the firm land. So I bet it sounds awful. (laughs) (laughs) How far do you think they're away from actually commercial space travel? Part of that question is how far are, how far is the, the, the flight test program from being complete? And how far are they from having kind of a viable business? You could you, with the flight test program, I think that you could sort of see what needs to be done. They are probably three, four flights from from sort of proving the concept. But proving the concept and building a business that is safe and that is offering kind of predictable 
and reliable space travel are, are two really vastly different equations. That unfortunately, the Virgin Galactic configuration lends itself to a viable long-term kind of business operation. I think that there it's 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 fraud. I don't think that commercial space travel or, or space tourism as as a as an industry um, is hopeless by any means. It's tough to sort of see the road for Virgin Galactic. Haven't people already bought tickets? Yeah, six hundred and something people have bought tickets. So they have all this money on uh, the company has all this money on deposit. I think at some point they had 700 that say had about 700 deposits and now they have in the low sixes so so i think that the crash probably scared people off there's a, a race car driver slash investor slash virgin galactic early passenger who who i write about in the book who you know just at a certain point said you know i could do something better with that two hundred thousand dollars and i don't see that it's going to actually get me to space anytime soon so kind of before almost like i think his thought was before before there's a rush on the bank to get our money back, I'd rather just go ahead and get my money back now. It's hard for me to imagine sort of at what point Virgin Galactic is 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 able to deliver the kind of reliability that they have themselves set out to provide. It's just it's it's a really 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 difficult task. Did you get a sense of what the end game, like the overall plan is? Obviously, space tourism speaks for itself. You want to go into space, but what are you getting? Like, what are you? Are you? Yeah. Is there a reason we're all going to benefit from being able to do this, or is this purely just a rich person just using their money to say, "Yeah, I did it"? I think there's some of that. I think there's certainly like there's just a, a there's a vanity aspect to it. Um, there's an exclusiveness to it. So I don't know at the time of its conception how many of these other sort of justifications were there, but. There is a sense that, uh, and there is a there is a kind of a widely accepted sense inside of the company now, and in its in its filings to the to various Security and Exchange Commission in the U.S., which is now you know because Virgin Galactic is now a public company, and so you know part of their how they've marketed the business in recent years is that if they can prove this suborbital concept that that can translate to hypersonic point-to-point travel, that you would be able, you know, kind of almost like the Concorde, right, that you would be able to board an airplane in, in London and be in, you know, Los Angeles in four hours or something. The number they throw around is, is you know, New York to Sydney in four hours, I think. So that's paradigm changing. I'd be very surprised if that's in the next five years. I mean, I think there's a lot of, of exploration for exploration's sake. And when you are exploring, you are inherently learning things that are going that you didn't expect to learn that have um, applications outside of the kind of the original the original intent. But at this point, all of that is secondary because the primary goal of creating this suborbital, you know, space line is just proving so difficult and elusive for the company. Right. The guys that are investing in it, like the the billionaires how involved how involved does richard branson get in the nitty-gritty or is he just chucking cash at it there's this crazy sort of obstacle which is that in the united states discussing or divulging information about rockets or rocket technology is against the law discussing it and divulging it to foreigners and so as a result of that even though richard branson owns virgin galactic Richard Branson is not privy to technical details about the very rocket motor that he is investing in because he's a foreigner. That's crazy. I could see why, but that's crazy. It, it's a lot of trust he's putting in with that money. 
Totally, totally. So, so he's not very involved. On the other hand, what I know and hear about about how SpaceX or Elon Musk's company and Blue Origin, Jeff Bezos's company, operate is that both of them, Musk and Bezos, are much more in the weeds and interested in getting in the weeds. They both have a more technical background. I mean, Elon Musk is very much kind of you know, there's there's this there's this fabulous scene. I think it's from uh, a biography about him in which you know he was going out to bars 20 years ago. And, you know, reading, you know, Soviet rocket manuals while sitting at the bar while his buddies are all over there getting drunk, you know, like he's just he wants to kind of tangle with the with with the uh, with the with the, with the technicalities. Right. But well, I told you, um, yeah, I went down a real wormhole reading some of your stories like the the writing. And I'm not just blowing smoke here. The amount of detail that you go into and in some of the stories that you've written on The New Yorker just blew me away. I want to talk about a couple of them. I want to start with the Tyrone Hood story. Mm. Can you give me a little bit of background into what happened there? Just a little bit of context. Yeah. And it's a story that continues to uh, kind of reverberate and resonate because, uh, and it was, we'll get to it in a second. And I think 1996, uh, there was a, a young college basketball star in Chicago who was murdered. Tyrone Hood was identified as a suspect and was interviewed and Chicago Police Department had and has a reputation for being the fourth confession capital of the, of, of the United States and of being the wrongful conviction capital of the United States. What that means is that people tell the Chicago police things that the Chicago police wants to hear, but that often have under review come undone. In this instance, there was a murder. Tyrone Hood was was identified as a suspect. Tyrone Hood was arrested. Tyrone Hood maintained his innocence. What happened is that in the course of, of his attorneys looking into the case, they found that this young man who was killed, his name was Marshall Morgan Jr., that Marshall Morgan Sr. had a very, very, very suspect past involved um, a murder of a best friend uh, or, or shooting a best friend in the late 70s, taking out an insurance policy on his son shortly before his son was killed. In the meantime, while Tyrone Hood's case was going to trial, Marshall Morgan Sr.'s girlfriend was murdered. It was found out that he had taken out a life insurance policy on her shortly before she was killed. And so Tyrone Hood's lawyers were like, look, not only did our guy not do it, but like that dude right there needs some serious legal attention. And for whatever reason, Marshall Morgan Sr. was not investigated. Now, this brings up a whole kind of question about police corruption and and why allegedly dirty cops do allegedly dirty things. But if you've invested all of this time and energy into sort of proving a case, I, I, I genuinely think that you sometimes you believe the fiction that you've told yourself or you believe the story you've told yourself and as to whether or not you think it's a fiction or not. So Tyrone Hood... Um, there was a Marshall Morgan Sr. was involved with another murder that he confessed to. I mean, there was a girlfriend, a wife, a best friend, and then his son. All of them sort of fit a similar pattern with life insurance policy and then gunshot wound, gunshot wound um, victim that was left in their own car. All, all four of them had similar kind of hallmarks. And so I started working on the story in 2013, I think, late 2013. And I think we put together what was a pretty compelling argument that, like, I couldn't say for sure that Tyrone Hood was innocent. But what I could say for certainty, Marsh, that he, he deserved another trial. And, and he deserved a trial in which his lawyers were all able to put forth 
all of the exculpatory evidence that they had gathered with regards to Marshall Morgan Sr. And so the piece came out. And um, about two months later, the outgoing governor of Illinois freed Tyrone Hood. Wow. Gave him a pardon. And said publicly and then said later to me that it was that he read the article and that there was no way that he could not pardon Tyrone Hood on his way out the door. The Chicago cops got confessions out of witnesses, right? Yeah. So yeah. so how did how did they get around that? Because like, obviously, you know, you've got people saying, yeah, Tyrone did it. Yeah. I mean, you had people saying Tyrone did it, but then you had people then subsequently recanting their statements and saying, you know, I said it under duress or the cops threatened me or whatever. And I mean, when I came into the story and I was sort of going through all these all these statements and these recanted statements, you're like, you know, like, who do, uh, who do you believe? Right. I mean, what do you what version of this witness's statement am I supposed to believe? The, the first one, the recanted one or the recanted recant, you know, mm-hmm. like it's ultimately these detectives. If it was one or two or three incidents. It would be one thing, but these detectives have easily sort of double digits. I mean, I think that I think that Kenneth Boudreau, who was the sort of the main detective in the story, I think he had like 180 complaints filed against him. You know that that had sort of you know uh, miscon- police misconduct complaints. I mean, it was really it was it was insane. And Some it, big red flags. Yeah, it, totally. And so how these detectives are ru- sort of continue to rise up the ranks in the police department is is beyond me but when you look and this is all before the age of dash cams and body cams and all that but when you look at what's happening in the United States now with white police officers and 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 black not even like you know I mean suspects victims like you know just just citizens all of the narrative that seemed far-fetched or seemed like a stretch because it's so it seems so sort of blatantly racist sort of in the in the you know in the decades prior to the body cam suddenly feels sort of disquietingly realistic in some ways the tyrone hood case is like there are so many cases now of police misconduct and wrongful convictions that it's like how do you pick one i mean that was a little bit of the case as well when i started working on the story and people would say well why are you doing this case rather than any other and it's like I can't pick the best one. Like they're all, they're all horrific and terrible. Mm. Like Tyrone's case in some ways, what, 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 what did grab my attention about Tyrone's case was not that it was just that this, in, that Tyrone was maintaining his innocence, but that you had what appeared to be a potentially sort of serial killing father running this crazy murderous insurance scheme on the side. Like the whole thing was just, it was, it was mind boggling. Is his dad still out? Is it, have they investigated him at all? His dad is so his his dad is serving time for having um, killed his wife or girlfriend and then stuffed her in the trunk of a car after taking out a life insurance policy on her. And then, you know, there's this insane video. We posted the video on the New Yorker website of Marshall Morgan Sr.'s confession to, to, to killing this woman. And he, he explains it in such sort of cold, detached language you know, my take on it was like, you can't watch that and not think that this guy is, 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 is a psychopath and that murdering his son in order to sort of, you know, take out whatever, you know, to, to take whatever amount of money he got on the insurance policy is, is far from being beyond the pale. You know, I want to talk about your story on Osama bin Laden on the, on the raid. 
um, yeah. and the details around that. But before we get into that, you were actually kicked out of Pakistan at one point, weren't you? Yeah. So I, uh, uh, right out of grad school, went and moved to Pakistan um, for uh, two years. I had this, this writing fellowship from this organization called the Institute of Current World Affairs, which is this small outfit that was at the time based up in, in New Hampshire, um, in, in New England, United States. And they their whole thing was that they had this this endowment. I mean, it sounded so much like a CIA cover that, you know, it was it was and this is ultimately what I think probably roused the attention of or aroused the attention of the Pakistanis. Like, you know, they were kind of like, who are you? What are you? What are you doing here? What is this organization? But but the Institute of Criminal Affairs sends people in these two year writing fellowships. And the only guidance is, you know, don't come home and write about what you see. Learn, learn the local language. Don't come home and write about what you see. So, you know, we, every month they asked how much it was going to cost us to live. They put about they put that amount of money in our accounts. And my wife and I both moved to Pakistan. Both of us learned enough Urdu to get around and, um, you know, went at it. And like, and so we were there for two years. The longer you're there, you know, you're kind of constantly reassessing the risk landscape. And, 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 and also the longer you're there, what seemed risky, you know, a year and a half ago when you got there no longer seems risky now because you've done it so many times. You're like, all right, I can, I can figure this out. It became clear that the rise of the Pakistani Taliban was was the story at the time. And, you know, I had contacts and I spoke some Urdu and I knew, you know, various people that were sort of central to that movement and, and started reporting on it pretty extensively inside of, of, of you know, radical mosques in Islamabad and, and up in the mountains uh, sort of along the Afghan border. And eventually uh, I wrote a piece for the New York Times magazine about this new generation of Taliban and how it was they were they were particularly dangerous because the old generation of Taliban you know kind of like your your, your father's Taliban that that had run Afghanistan in the late 90s those guys no longer had any control over this new generation and I was like yeah that's a for a culture along the Pakistan Afghanistan border that is so tied into you know to customs and, and hospitality and all that like and the importance of elders, when the elders are no longer important, like it's a pretty significant cultural shift that, right, was, that yeah. was fueling this new generation. So I wrote that piece and it, it came out right around the time, like two days after Benazir, uh, the prime, former prime minister, Benazir Bhutto was assassinated by the, by the Taliban. The intelligence officer showed up at our door and, and knocked on, you know, and said, you have, you got, you got to leave tonight. So we were deported. My, my wife was the nutrition counselor at the Five Star Hotel, this lovely hotel in Islamabad. And one of her clients uh, was uh, related to the prime minister. And he said to my wife, if you ever really need anything, you know, let me let me know. So I remember standing in the driveway with these plainclothes, you know, with these police officers. And then behind them were the intelligence officers who were kind of, you know, say, telling them what to say and do. And I remember running upstairs and telling my wife, I was like, hey, this is the real, this is serious shit. Like, we are getting kicked out of this country right now. This is, <laughs> you know, you know my, my heart is like beating out of my neck. And she said, no, it's fine. It's fine. Just call Mansoor. So I called Mansoor and I explained him the situation. And he said, well, I'm playing bridge right now with President Musharraf's national security advisor. <laughs> so he said, you you pass the phone to the senior most police officer and I'll pass the phone to Tariq, uh, I think to Tariq Aziz. And I remember the look on this police officer's face when I handed him the phone and told him who was on the other line for him. I mean, this guy was just like, ah, how did I draw this short straw tonight? So, so that bought us 24 hours to leave the country. Or what a power hours. play. Yeah, it was a total power play. And you could see it, but, but yeah, so that I potentially also may have just sort of stuck in their craw a bit too, because so we left 
And we came back to the U.S. And then there was a government change. And the, and, and the, the political party, the, the Pakistan People's Party that had been at, that at the time when I was kicked out had been saying, oh, this is a travesty. We shouldn't be kicking out journalists. You know, Schmidt should be allowed to stay, blah, blah, blah. They were now in power. And so I went to the embassy and I various people that were sort of close to Benazir Bhutto's uh, widow, widower. And I explained that, like, hey, I want to come back and I have this I want to go back and write this story. It's sort of a softball story. I want to write this story for Smithsonian Magazine about Sufism. And so they let me back in uh, eight months after I was kicked out. It was this time it was real. Like this time I was with a Pakistani journalist who was who was doing some fixing and some some uh, sort of arranging meetings. And I landed in I was in Karachi and he got a call from a guy who said he wanted to interview me from a local newspaper. But that guy didn't exist. Like, you know, the fixer called the newspaper and said, hey, we just got a call from a guy named something or other who says he wants to interview this foreigner who's with me. Can you just confirm that he's on the staff? And the editor of the paper said, no, that, that person doesn't exist. And so we we're like, all right. What? Yeah, this is that that was kind of like, you know, the hairs in the back of your neck are standing up. This is, you know, that, and that was very much the playbook that led up to the abduction of Daniel Pearl. I mean, these, you know, meeting people who sort of seem ostensibly legit that uh, ultimately abducted him. So. So we so we leave Karachi. We are going up to this this Sufi festival up in uh, sort of four hours, five hours north of Karachi, but like in the middle of nowhere, and literally in the area that is notorious for, for bandits and like you know for for you know carjackings and and what they call them, you know. So we like we're driving up there, and we're getting these phone calls from people because the local television station is carrying a story that I've been kidnapped. My wife called me. And she said, I just got a phone call from the U.S. State Department. They say you've been kidnapped. And I said, well, I've not been kidnapped. But I know that the the intelligence agencies are, are feeding these stories to the news that I've been kidnapped. So, like, they've already broken the news. Now they just have to sort of find me. So there was, like, 24 hours of this where we were in the middle of nowhere trying to get to the Sufi Festival because the magazine had sent us. And I was like, I just need to get to this festival for, like, an hour two hours, three hours, and I could do what I need to do and get the reporting I need to do and then get the hell out of here. So I'm with this photographer and we go up and we sort of, you know, we go to the festival and it's amazing. And then we get back in the car to drive back through bandit country and we drive all night and like we crack an axle in the car. I mean, it was just, it was, it was a folly. And eventually I called the U.S. Embassy and I said, you know, I haven't, I haven't asked for anything in the past two years, but like, I need to get out of the country. I can't get on any airplanes. All the flights are booked. I can't get on, I can't get on a flight. The woman from the embassy said, you know, we're glad you called. And this is one of those moments that as a reporter, I wish I could go back and relive. She says, I'm glad you called because we know, we know the agencies are watching you, but we can't tell whether they're trying to protect you from a threat or whether they are the threat. In other words, do they, are they also monitoring this traffic, this sort of, you know, telephone traffic? And are they, do they know that there's someone trying to abduct you or, or is it them that are trying to abduct you and they're going to blame it on someone else? So they said, get to the, uh, there's a five-star hotel in, in Karachi, the, the Pearl Continental. They said, get there, get a room, don't come out and we will, uh, we'll come, we'll come find you. And we'll, you know, like we'll knock. So, you know, an hour or two later, we were like, we called them. I called them as I was, we were coming into Karachi after having driven all night. We check in the hotel, we get a room. And then this guy knocks on the door and he shows a badge and he says he's from the U.S. Embassy. And they load me into a bulletproof car and take me to the embassy and walk me through all the security to make sure that I got all the way to the gate. 
and my dad at that point was a uh, my dad retired a few years ago from the Marine Corps as a three-star general. At that point, I think he was a two-star general. And I called him to try and explain to him what had happened. And every time that I started to explain what happened, the line kept dropping. And I'm trying to get to Dubai. Just, you know, I'm like, okay, just get somewhere that's that's quasi-legit. And yeah. so um, and so I said to my dad, I'll call you, I'll call you when I get to Dubai. And uh, and you know, and I got on the airplane and I landed and everything was fine. But but at that point I felt truly kind of, you know, terrifying. Yeah, that felt like hearing that story, it feels like something that would almost follow you home. It's just like, it's time to cut at my ties now with Pakistan because we don't want that coming anywhere near my home. Totally. Well, that, so so to, to draw a connection, when I came back from Pakistan, I did a bunch of events at various think tanks and whatnot, and, and people would come up afterwards from the intelligence community and from the special operations community and be like, you know, look, I you know, would love to talk more. And so I, I developed contacts and relationships. Flash forward two years when the bin Laden raid happened, I reached out to one of these guys shortly after that. I was I was on assignment. I was working on my first piece for the New Yorker and I, you know, see news of the bin Laden raid. And I reached out to one of these guys who was who was part of that SEAL Team Six community. And I said something about I can't remember what I asked him, but he, his reply was the boys did a great job. You know, we're all coming back. We did, We all just came back. We're all on our way back from Pakistan now. So I knew he was involved. You know, a week or two after that, um, met and started sort of gathering string. You know, there was already a lot that had been put out there about the bin Laden, about the raid itself. Uh, much of it was erroneous, but there was there was stuff out there that had been put out by Obama administration officials. So in some ways, sources were like, "Look, that didn't really happen. The way it really happened." was like this. And then I could take that story and then go to someone else and say, okay, I understand that this happened. You know, when he walked into the room, he said this, and the helicopters were based, you know, the helicopters were flying in from Afghanistan and they actually settled, you know, here in this valley. And then someone would say like, yeah, but I get, but, it, but, you know, and they'd listen to me sort of tell what I knew. And then they'd say, all right, I bet you didn't know this though. I feel like ego is such a both as a reporter and as a subject and as a source, et cetera. It's just, it, 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 it's, it's, you know, it's important, but it factors into people's motivations so much. It was able to kind of just continue to piece together the story by going back to sources and kind of just making the rounds over the course of two or three months. And then, uh, so the piece came out three months after the raid. Uh, and it was, you know, this very sort of meticulous, detailed TikTok account that we had been able to piece together of kind of what happened every minute of during those 38 minutes on target. The thing about that is the access you had to the not only SEAL Team 6, because you chatted to a few of those guys, but the access that you had to the White House, because you mm. are detailing quotes and detailing times and Obama said this, this is what happened. Like, How are you getting mm. that? It truly does come down to, you get lucky sometimes, a lot of times. I mean, you, you do all your sort of, you do all your legwork. Every once in a while, a source just happens to be a source who is who is central to all of those things and helps you piece together the picture with a level of granularity. Often, it doesn't work that way. Most of the time, you're you're feeding off of scraps, and then every once in a while, you you know here comes the here comes the the, the untouched fillet, and it's and it's all ready to go. So, and I don't think that there's a there's a perfect answer. And yes, you know, mm -hmm. I, I'm careful because my reliance on confidential sources for that story was pretty extensive. Then there was the the Chris Kyle story. Uh, it was yeah. played by Bradley Cooper, an American yeah. sniper. Again, that was interesting because of how close you got to the families after he was yeah. murdered. Can you talk me through the process of 
how that happened. So because of the Bin Laden story, for a while, I was the kind of New Yorker's resident Navy SEAL guy. <laughs> right. You know, I distinctly remember, it's funny, it's bringing back all these memories, but I mean, I remember sort of where I was when I got a, a you know Google alert that Chris Kyle had been killed. And I remember thinking, it just barely, just 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 the just the faintest sort of sketch of of what had happened seemed sufficient to pursue as a magazine piece. What I was worried about was this. I was worried. I remember my my initial concern was that the way that I like to kind of do investigations, uh, and particularly for the New Yorker, which are very kind of character driven, is that I like to oftentimes find stories about people who feel sort of unmistakably alien and evil. And and give readers a reason to find sort of a part of themselves or to see a part of themselves in that character, to relate to that character in some way, to relate to that person. And, and, and just to kind of make the world feel a little bit less foreign and alien all around. Like, you know, what would I have done in that case? Kind of, you know, I want I want people to ask those questions. I want to make people sort of uncomfortable with, you know, moral decisions that are being witnessed and observed in these pieces. And I remember in the case of the Chris Kyle story, I said, I don't want to go, you know, if my whole thing is kind of taking bad, you know, taking kind of bad people and making them seem relatable, I don't want to go and write a story about this war hero, you know, like to, to stomp all over this war hero's grave. Like that's, that's, and I said, but let me go, uh, but there was a funeral that was being held in Dallas Cowboys Stadium. I mean, you know, capacity like 100,000 people. And that was where they were going to do the funeral. And, you know, and it was, I think there were probably 10,000 people in the stadium, but like, it was still, it was a big deal. And, and, mm. and I said, let me go to the, let me go to the memorial service and just do some preliminary poking around. And when I did that, I also wrote a letter and I went to the sister of Eddie Ray Routh, who was the individual who had said that he'd killed Chris Kyle. The question was like, why? Like what, what, what possibly happened? Right. I went and I, and I um, knocked on the door at, at, at the sister's house. And and the reason I had wanted to try and find her was that Eddie, I think, had gone to her house after he killed Chris Kyle and said, I just killed Chris Kyle. And so I went to her house, knocked on the door. She didn't answer. I left the letter. I put I think I put the letter. I think I might have I think I might have left flowers as well, because I was just like, look, like, I know you're going through like and my my, my whole thing was that you didn't do anything. You're the sister of, of a guy who just killed a war, an American war hero. Like you as the sister didn't do anything, but I know your life sucks right now and is going to suck as a result of this. So like, you know, to know that people are also kind of thinking about you. So I left that there. So then I continued to kind of push away to kind of to work away on the story. I felt like I could get enough about Eddie Ray Routh to make it satisfying, but not quite to make it sing. And then the sister started to talk and then Eddie's mom and dad started to talk. And then at one point, Eddie called me from prison. And I just realized that there was this incredibly tragic story about two troubled individuals, troubled for very different reasons, who met one day at a gun range and, you know, kind of like they're coming from different places. They're coming from two very troubled pasts. Chris Kyle is, is ready to help this guy whose mom has reached out to Chris Kyle to ask for help. They meet at this gun range and then both lives you know, we're, we're, we're changed forever. Chris Kyle, because he was, he was shot and killed and Eddie Ray Routh because he'll spend the rest of his life in jail. And it was a question kind of about post-traumatic stress and this sort of awful, tragic, ironic fate that befell both of them because the sourcing was so good. And because everyone was on the record 
those kind of stories, in some ways, it sort of wrote itself. You know, I sat down. I was like, all right, well, it's just it's the mom has sort of talked through. She, you know, she had talked through everything in such incredible detail mm. that putting that piece together was was once people started talking. Chris Kyle had this book, so like it was various parts of the of the story that the sourcing was available. And at the time, you know, at the time that felt also like like a really important piece of journalism because U.S. government is ready to spend any amount of money it needs to getting young men and women ready to fight wars, but is unwilling to sort of pony up the least amount of money to bring them back into normal society. And that was a story about how that ill treatment had, had, had failed these two families. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Let's get into some lighter stuff now. You did a, a big expose on TMZ, which is for those, if you're listening to this, and you don't know who they are. Basically, they report on Hollywood gossip. Is there a better way of putting that? No, that's that's a that's a good that's a good description. How easy was that to get to insiders at TMZ to to come forward with information on that? So I I was coming off of a piece that uh, had involved this this Saudi bank fraud. It, it was a story about a, a, a bank fraud in the Middle East. One of the main characters, the players, was this Kuwaiti-born Saudi who had allegedly robbed or defrauded his family of $20 billion. We had all the evidence. We had all the goods. We had all the documents. And the story sort of said just that. And this this billionaire was threatening to sue us and, you know, every jurisdiction. And I was kind of like, ah, crap. this is again going back <laughs> to not being able to go places. You know, I remember saying at one point we were talking about we were thinking about moving to Europe. And I remember saying to the lawyers, I was like, well, what can I can I move to Europe if there's like this, you know, if he subpoenaed me? And, you know, so because it, it was all his lawyers who were here in London that were that were sort of, you know, gnashing their teeth. And so as we were finishing that up, my editor said, why don't you do something a little lighter? Why don't you go and do this TMZ story? Why don't you sort of give TMZ their own, uh, you know, their own, a bite of their, a taste of their own medicine. Give TMZ the TMZ treatment. So, you know, I went out to Los Angeles and, and it was bright and sunny and lovely. And, you know, I'm kind of interviewing, you know, people about celebrities. But like getting people inside TMZ to talk was really difficult, really difficult. It's a small world, right? And they're terrified of Harvey Levin, who runs the, the website. They're all under uh, and non-disclosure agreements. You know, even some that were no longer working there, but still had sources in the celebrity community, were still making money by selling tips back to TMZ. So they were like ready to sort of badmouth it, but not too much because they kind of saw which way their butter, you know, their their bread was being buttered. It proved much more challenging than I had anticipated going in. I kind of thought, all right, well, you know, I'm coming off Saudi Saudi billionaire, like this will be, you know, yeah. I can I can handle a celebrity website. And it was, it, it kicked my ass. And then <laughs> eventually we got, you know, we got a huge cache of emails that kind of helped fill things in. At TMZ, I felt like I knew the way things worked pretty well, but I felt like there was still a vault of secrets that I desperately wanted to access, but I, I just, I, I couldn't get there. That, you know, whether it was 
from one source, sometimes two sources about instances of celebrity blackmail that I just couldn't get three sources to be able to confirm. And, and so you know, it was it was it was tough because it was like, all right, what 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 new do we have to say? And I think in the end, it was just showing how they operate as much like a, an intelligence agency as like a law enforcement agency as they do as a news gathering organization. I mean, they're trading information, they're leveraging information over celebrities to get information about other celebrities. It was a I remember coming back at the end of some of those reporting trips, you know, I get to my hotel at night and, you know, so, and some of these guys were really entertaining. There was this one guy whose whole job was to broker sex tapes. Like, you know, there's celebrity sex tapes. Really? His job, it's his, he gets the tapes and then he sells them to TMZ or who were one of these, you know, their competitors. And you now this guy was funny as hell and we would go out and we'd have a good time. But at the, you know, sometimes you're just like, oh man, it's like, <laughs> I can't listen to another conversation about us, you know, an illicitly acquired celebrity sex tape. And so, yeah, that was, that was, that was, a, it was a smutty experience, but, but, but in the end, a fun one. TMZ, they have close relationships with some of the defense attorneys of celebrities yeah. would use TMZ for publicity and things like that, wouldn't they, for their own benefit? Totally. Divorce attorneys, defense attorneys, you know, they have LA pretty much wired, right? And, and they're getting access to documents that have been filed that haven't sort of been put in the system yet. So they're getting, you know, they're getting a jump on it. And so everybody else is waiting for the document to pop up in the digital database. And TMZ has a hand on it as it's being, as the clerk is, uh, you know, about to scan it in to put it into the digital database. And they're, they've got the story. Whitney Houston, I feel like Whitney Houston overdosed. They had a guy in the hotel who was pushing the, the room service cart, who was taking pictures for them. I mean, yeah. One of the big things you, you talk about is the uh, Justin Bieber video is the, um, is the one that I took note of. They, they had some dirt on him for a while, didn't they? Yeah, they had a video of him as a kid saying the N-word, and they were all ready to run it. And then at the last minute, Justin Bieber's manager sort of made a last-ditch plea um, to not run it. They were going to ruin this kid's life. And again, these are the secrets that are in the vault that it's, un it's hard to know exactly sort of what was said. But what happened next is that they decided not to run it. And what happened next is that Justin Bieber suddenly became a very good friend of TMZ. And was showing up, giving them exclusive interviews, and being very buddy-buddy uh, buddy with, with TMZ. It's hard to know exactly kind of what was said or what was done. You can just sort of, you know, you can look at the fact pattern and you can draw conclusions from it. But uh, I mean, that was the part that was, that you know, that was the part that was a bit unsatisfying is not being able to kind of explain exactly, not being able to get into the head of Harvey Levin in a way that, I've been able to get into the head of other people who have given me the access to be able to tell you what they're thinking at the time that they did something. And that's, you know. Did Harvey even ever, did you ever speak to him or ever try and get hold of him? I found out in the, in the very end of the, after I was done reporting and he still had not uh, agreed to talk, I found out that he was giving a public speech at his alma mater at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And so I flew out there and I went up to him and the speech ended and I introduced myself. Yeah, he sort of, you know, did a double take when I said who I was, uh, and then just wanted nothing more to do with well, nothing. And I asked him, I can't remember, I asked him a few questions and he just sort of blew me off and then, uh, and then left. So it was, it was, you know, I needed to have that confrontation. It was exciting. It was thrilling and all that, but like, uh, and that's happened with, you know, with a number of, of, of stories in the end where you're like, all right, I need to go and, and I either need to go confront the person who I'm writing about or tell the person who I'm writing about that everything that they think that, I'm going to say about them is not what I'm going to say about them. I'd rather get the difficult moments out of the way before the piece comes out in which they tell me that 
I'm an asshole and I everything about who I am or what I've done is is you know terrible. I'd rather have that conversation before than have them see the piece for the first time. I believe really, really strongly in a process, the fact checking process that the New Yorker is famous for. You know, I hired I hired a guy um, to go through this book. You know, all 350 pages of it. Every single word, clause, assertion, asking me sort of what's the what's the sourcing for it. And it's a way. I mean, essentially went and rewrote the book, re-reported the book. Uh, where'd you get this? What does it say? You read the source and it says, now you describe it as saying, you know, can we say it's, you know, say the number is 39. You describe it as saying more than 40, but it's actually not quite 40. So should we say around 40, you know, going and making sure that like, uh, you know, yeah. and sometimes softening the language, but also going to sources and saying, okay, this is what we're going to say. This is what this book is going to say about you. You, you may not like it, but is there anything factually wrong about what we're saying? And it give it, you know, it, sometimes you learn a lot from that process. Mm. Um, sometimes it's people just kicking and screaming and saying, you know, I didn't think this was going to be in there. And you're like, well, you know, why shouldn't it be? Just because you had a moment of of candor doesn't mean that I'm not going to put it in the book or I'm not going to put it in the article. So you know, that was that you know that that was the kind of that was that moment with Harvey Levin. I feel like that's that's in some ways like you report, you write. You get an edit, you go back and you report and you write more. You get another edit. Then it goes to the fact checker who essentially reports again. And so that by the time the piece is done, I mean, it's taken forever, but like there's nothing more I can feel like I can do with it. There are some, you know, some leads that I might think oh, I wish I would have gotten more on that. But um, by the time the piece is done, I'm like, that's a, that's a, that's a team effort and a professionally produced piece of piece of work. What's the next big story that you're working on? What are you lining up? It's a good question. I mean, I think that part of it is trying to figure out what I can and can't do with with COVID restrictions or lack thereof. And I don't know. I, I finished the book. I'm writing a bunch of things for, sort of related to the book. And it's a little bit of like, let's let's finish the book and then let's kind of see see what the world looks like and and what seems like the uh, what seems like the right story to take on. The New Yorker is very different from from every most daily and even weekly journalism in that you have such a long period of time to work on it. Mm. So, you know, if you have two or three months to work on a story, that's a lot. In the case of the book, I had kind of, you know, two years to write it after I'd done the reporting. And so now the prospect of I need to I need to readjust and recalibrate my expectations. I'm like, all right, at some point I'm going to need to go back to doing journalism. That's that that is not a two year timeline, but I'm just not quite sure exactly what that what that project is going to be yet. Well, we will look forward to it and best of luck of whatever that may look like. And thank you so much for coming on the show, Nick. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Thank you very much for listening. I'd love to hear what you thought about the interview. So please make sure you leave us a review and we'll talk again next week.